If you want to take your kettlebell coaching career to the next level, consider getting certified with Libestock. Check the first link in the description. Ladies and gentlemen, we have another episode of the Kettle Knights podcast, and I have with me another kettlebell OG, my friends. I've had a lot of OGs on the podcast on my quest for truth when it comes to kettlebell training. And today I have with me Jeff Newbert. Jeff has been requested often from not only our subscribers, but also from fellow kettlebell practitioners and friends and coaches. And so I'm very happy to have Jeff on the podcast. Welcome. Gregory, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Awesome. So here's how we're going to do it. We do this with everybody. Uh, please give us your backstory. How did you get started with kettlebells? What do you think of it the first time you touched it? And how's it going now with kettlebells? Yeah, great. Uh, my first exposure to kettlebells was I was a strength and conditioning coach at Rutgers University. And I was probably in the late 90s, probably 97, 98, 99. And somebody dropped a muscle and fiction, uh, excuse me, muscle and fitness magazine on my desk. <laughs> and uh, I was just flipping through it. And in the back, they had the classifieds and Iron Mind Enterprises. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. Iron Mind Enterprises. Okay. Yeah, they were like the forerunners of Weightlifting House. If you know uh, Seb over Weightlifting House, um, they they publish a magazine called Milo. It's all things strength. And they had this, this video series called Wish You Were Here. And what they would do is they would go around and they, they were behind the scenes at all the European and international weightlifting championships. And the reason that was important to me is because I was a competitive Olympic lifter at the time. And as I said, I was training athletes as a strength, strength conditioning coach. And I'm in the back and I see this, this ad for Iron Mind Enterprises kettle stack. And it was an adjustable kettlebell stack. And I thought, man, that would be great because my wrestlers, they just have a hard time turning over the cleans, right? Because they got such uh, immobile wrists and tight shoulders. And, you know, the high pull is a, is a poor substitution for a clean. So wouldn't it be great to get the kettle stack? And so I showed my boss and he's like, hey, man, we don't, we don't have any money. We're, you know, we're the redheaded stepchildren. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that saying, but we're the redheaded stepchildren. Uh, you know, this is the mid to late nineties and strength and conditioning wasn't really a super big thing at, at Rutgers. Mm. Uh, we were making a transition from the high intensity training, which was one set to failure on hammer strength machines. And so the, basically the, um, the role of the strength coach at that point was, Hey, make sure you put your seatbelt on in the machine so it doesn't pull you up and you can get right. you can actually train so the typical bodybuilding type of approach right yeah very much so arthur mm. jones office type yeah 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 of course yeah so we were making a transition to actual sports specific stuff mm. so we couldn't get that but i did figure out a way to sneak out two adjustable handles thick bar dumbbell handles and so i use those with some of my wrestlers because what we found is that the pure barbell strength was non-transferable to the mat so you got some big numbers in the weight room, but you can't transfer it. Wow. So, wow. Wow. Let me just let me just uh, stop you there right quick. That sounds very interesting. So you're saying uh, barbell strength does not directly transfer to the strength on the mat for a wrestler, right? Depends on the wrestler, but yes, that's exactly what and, I'm saying. And, and why is that? Uh, it's just specificity, principle of specificity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean... Um, barbell the big three barbell lifts are mm -hmm. uniplane right primarily and wrestling is not there's a lot of rotational a lot of transverse plane a lot of torque and you have to be able to figure out how to use that torque in order to apply it to your opponent right and be able to use it apply it to yourself and 
yeah, it's great to have big numbers in the weight room, but like I said, most of my, most of my wrestlers could not apply the numbers that they had on the, the barbell squat, the deadlift, the bench press and the military press to the mat. So we had wow. to make transitions. Wow. And if you read guys like Tudor Bampa, they talk about this. They talk about transition periods uh-huh. where you're, you're taking maximum strength and you're transitioning into sports specific strength. Yes. I, I, I've read about this from, um, Dr. Michael Yeses, uh, which I've yeah. had on the podcast, the biomechanist, yeah, and, and a lot of the Yuri Verkhoshansky, the, the Soviet Union stuff, which exactly. is exactly what he says, right? You're building the strength, but then you have to apply it to your sport, which is so important. It doesn't, it's yeah. not, or it's useless to become as strong as possible if you're not able to transfer the strength uh, onto your sport. But my, which, which sounds logical, but just my initial hunch, if we can stay on that topic for a, for a bit, is I'm just assuming if I have bigger numbers on the three lifts, I am getting stronger. So that strength is somewhere. But you're saying because of the rotational forces that are applied in wrestling, because yeah, you, you move in different planes of motions that are not just the typical sagittal area, right? right? So that's the reason why you're not able to really use those numbers you might be stronger and there might even be some effect but it's not really translated because you're missing on the rotational axis yeah, well, or that's, that's one of the reasons right it's it's planes of motion ranges of motion uh, excuse me planes of movement ranges of motion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like i said 8 a.m here so uh yeah that was that was one of the biggest things that we noticed and you're correct you know virashansky professor virashansky talks about that dr michael yeses did a fantastic job taking dr virashansky's work and bringing mm-hmm. it Mm-hmm. you know, to the uh, collective consciousness uh, beyond the, you know, the uh, Iron Curtain back in the mm-hmm. 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's what, that's what we found. And wow. it was really frustrating because in Olympic lifting, right, if you work on the Olympic lifts, you'll get stronger. But what I noticed is I had a I had one of those like, uh-oh moments. Um, I was 230 pounds, which is 105 kilos for our European friends. And one of the wrestlers, a guy named Doug Riddell, wrestled at um, 149, which I believe is about 68 mm-hmm. kilos. That's my, my body weight, approximately, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember we had just finished a preseason practice, right? So it was leading up into the season. We'd just done some conditioning work. And I had had the guys run through the park, and we were doing cows, calisthenics, and that sort of thing. And now Dougie is 70 pounds lighter than me in the offseason. And uh, he gives me a bear hug and he picks me up like, I mean, I'm like a feather to this guy. I'm thinking I'm up here in the air and I'm thinking this is no problem for this kid. Right. And I'm like, all right, no big deal. I'll just break his grip. And I was shocked because I could not break his grip. And I, and I just messed around. I'm like, ah, oh, Doug, you're good. Funny times. All right, put me down. We got to get going. But it was, that was one of those moments where I was like, dude, <laughs> there's a big difference between practice in theory, right? So here I am, you know, I'm jerking all kinds of weight over my head, doing all kinds of heavy explosive pulls, squatting crazy amounts of weight for me. And I'm having a hard time peeling a, you know, 165 kid off me, 165 pound, 58 kilo kid off me. And that that was one of those moments that just stuck. I mean, here I am 25 years later, remembering that moment, you know, it was, it was one of those amazing aha moments. And so from there, uh, you know, I trained some of my wrestlers. I had, we had teams, we had 26 teams we were responsible for. My primary teams were volleyball, gymnastics, mm-hmm. wrestling. Wrestling was my pet team. 
volleyball was my like second pet team. That's because my girlfriend was on the, on the team soon to be my wife. So I did a lot of my experimentation with these two teams mm-hmm. and uh, we moved from uh, New Jersey Rutgers in 2000 to North Carolina. So my wife could get her doctorate in physical therapy at Duke. And I started or restarted a full personal training practice in 2001. And all the while I was watching this skinny, evil Russian guy in muscle media talk about weird types of strength. I'm like, yeah, I know about that stuff. And then they started talking about kettlebells. And I thought, man, I'm using dumbbells with you. I'm using unilateral dumbbell training to do the Olympic lifts with my clients because the barbell lifts are just, they're time intensive and they're mm-hmm. technique prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And one of the lines yeah. that John or Pavel got me with, John Duquesne, Pavel's business partner in the uh, Russian Kettlebell Challenge, got me with was you don't need specialized coaching or expensive specialized equipment. So in 2002, January 2002, I bought my first set of kettlebells it was the starter set it was the four kilo the little rubber four kilo which became a doorstop uh had little use for that right away the eight (laughs) kilo right the 16 kilo the 24 kilo and the 32 kilo yeah and i got the rkc vhs tape and the rkc book and when they you know they they all came together so i was devouring it in the meantime still training for olympic lifting and uh, we've got dumbbells at the gym that i'm training in and so I'm doing snatches with super heavy dumbbells, getting ready for this kettlebell snatch because you know the kettlebell is, is built up to be just a man maker. So the kettlebells come, I completely ignore everything. I open up the 32 because it's the biggest yeah, yeah. and I grab that, right? And that's not true, I didn't completely ignore everything. I think I peruse the book and Pavel says, make sure you do this outside in case you need to drop the kettlebell, right? Because you don't want to crack your floor. I'm like, skinny Russian guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know who I am? Right? Like I, I have a qualified weightlifter. And so I take this 32 kilo. I'm in my apartment. It's in the middle of January. We've got carpet over hardwood floors. I snatched the weight up. It stalls, bottoms up. And I go, uh-oh. And then it flips over, smacks the back of my wrist. And I swore I broke my wrist. And uh, I was like, okay, not to be deterred. I'm going to do that again. So I put it down. I did it again same outcome. I thought, man, this, this thing's a beast. Well, in this, in this book, it shows Pavel doing this two hand swingy thing. So I'm going to go do that. So I went out, took it out into the front yard because I thought maybe just maybe I don't want to, you know, destroy my hardwood floors and, uh, you know, have to pay my uh, landlord a large chunk of money to replace the hardwood. So I, I take it out and I do 22 hand swings. And back then that was, there was only one swing and it was what we now know as the American swing. So every, you know, everything's overhead. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I do 20 because, you know, it's, it's 32 kilos and I'm a weightlifter, right? I mean, 32 kilos, it's nothing. And I, I did 20 because I don't know, it just sounded right. And, uh, I put it down. I thought that's not so bad. And then it felt like somebody punched me in the stomach, grabbed my lungs, yanked them outside my body and turned them inside out. <laughs> and I suppose, that's I a great like description. This. I got to yeah, remember I was, this. I felt like this too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was like, <laughs> how is that possible? Yeah. And as I'm trying to grab my breath, I'm like, that's good. I'm going to just remember repeating myself. That's good. That's good. That's good stuff. <laughs> yes. I remember this. So yeah. You remember? yeah. And uh, yeah. I thought, man, this is just like wrestling practice. This is just like getting gassed in wrestling practice. And from mm-hmm. then on, I was a believer. So, you know, I messed around with the VHS. 
tape and practice the technique a little bit for you know, a couple of weeks. And then I introduced them to my clients. And uh, back then it was, there really was not any nuance or subtlety to how you train. And so, you know, we had these massive bruises, like permanent bruises on the back of our forearms and on our shoulders mm -hmm. from the, the bells slapping us, you know, on the, on the snatch or on the clean or not on the shoulders. We had it from the clean. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, I couldn't figure out how to do that, but I knew because I was a weightlifter, right? Like, and I was, I was, you know, a decent weightlifter. I had to be smart enough to figure this out on my own. So in the meantime, we've got a, I've got a personal training business. I've got trainers working for me. I got a business partner and uh, we've got this really comprehensive and overly complicated system that we bought into based on uh, misapplied physical therapy principles. And I'm watching this skinny, evil, evil Russian guy who's just driving me nuts. And he's, yeah. And hopefully your, your listeners have figured out I'm speaking tongue in cheek. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, right? <laughs> I think uh, they already found out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, uh, wow. I'm watching him and he's able to get grandma Betty swinging a kettlebell in five to 10 minutes or less, right? Safely. And this system that we're using, we're actually, we, it was really frustrating for me because I'd already built my own system and it was working great. And that's how I built my business. I, I built a personal training business through word of mouth. And, um, I mean, to the point where I was literally training 70 to 75 hours a week, one-on-one -on -one mm. people. So, I mean, I had a nice long waiting list. I had to hire trainers. It was, it was fantastic. Mm. But I, I took what I knew was working and I submitted it to somebody who had what I thought was better credentials. And as a result, um, our clients started getting worse results and not getting them as fast, right? So we started losing clients. And so I've got this, how do I, how do I remake, you know, keep integrity with this system that supposedly is the best system in the world. And yet skinny evil Russian guy is getting grandma Betty swinging a kettlebell. Mm -hmm. Well, I just couldn't take it anymore, man. My ego couldn't handle it. It was crushed. And in 2005, I signed up for the RKC. So June, 2005, I went, went, signed up for the RKC and that was, that was the beginning of it. So, uh, from there I was, um, you know, ultimately became a master RKC, uh, published a book. And then when the, the split happened in October, 2012, I went with Pavel over to strong first and was a master instructor there until, uh, 2014, where I, I resigned because I had too much going on in my life and I was trying to grow another business. So hmm. I've just been using kettlebells ever since with myself. And uh, with my clients, it's, it forms the backbone of all my clients training programs. So you were, you already heard about kettlebells and then some not, something 99, 98, something. That's why you thought, Hey, I want to get these adjustables, yeah. right? right? Okay. So it was already floating around this idea, right? Yeah. Which, which I think is so fascinating when, when you look a little bit at the history, which I have taken a little bit of a deep dive on with my friend, uh, Geronimo Milo from Argentina. Um, he, he showed me this incredible manuscript filled with documents of, of how, how the kettlebell came to be. And it's so fascinating to see that around the, in the 19th century, you had strongmen from uh, Europe uh, that were uh, dabbling around with, with just, you know, maces and, and even gadas from India and just heavyweights in general doing these crazy feats of strength. And then even the kettlebell or ring weights, as they were called back then, were also mentioned. And then it traveled uh, to, to, to Russia, thanks to Dr. Vladislav Krajewski, who, who was um, uh, 
checking out the, the, the Europeans, how they were handling these kettlebells on, and these weights. And then he was taking these ideas to Russia. And then, so the kettlebell got lost along the way in, in the 20th century. And, but it was all already there. So that's probably the reason why you heard of it. So it's something like a little bit in, in obscurity, so to speak. But then in the wake of, of Pavel's reckoning in the West, this is how, how it all came to be, right? So that's the reason why you then jumped into the RKC because there was nothing else around, right? It's, it, it was the place to be. And I remember how John shared this with me. He was like, hey, um, we wanted to become the authority. And I told Pavel, that's how we have to do it because I had John on the podcast as well and he sh shared his ideas with me. So uh, that sounds fascinating. And I've had the similar experience, not with the 32, I had a similar experience with the 16 and with the 20 when I had to prepare for uh, Steve Carter's IKFF certification test. And I remember I was the typical bodybuilding type dude with the split and everything. And I was uh, proud with my strength numbers and not a, not a very strong guy. I'm a lightweight guy, but I was, you know, decently strong for my weight, I'm assuming. And then I was, uh, yeah, I was crushed in the same manner from these uh, 16s. And I, was, I remember I was like, how can this thing make me feel so unfit? And right. before I was preparing for the test, I remember I was doing some sort of a workout with some snatches and cleaning presses and stuff with typical reps and everything, just five reps, 10 reps, 15 reps. And I almost died. And I remember I'll never touch these weights like this again. I'm going to use them for just some farmer's walks and some deadlifts and that's it. But then, you know, a little bit further down the line, I realized, hey, when I have to prep for Steve Carter's IKFF cert, I have to, yeah, I have to get going. So um, it's fascinating to me that you were actually a personal trainer running a business and then you were adapting kettlebell slowly because your current system wasn't really working am i right right and what happened there so you started implementing kettlebells and what happened when was that 2005 well we started implementing kettlebells so i had been implementing kettlebells all along with like a select group of my clients mm -hmm. we i had my my own system, which was based on strength and my strength conditioning principles that I had been trained as by, mm. as a coach, I was a um, certified strength conditioning specialist through the NSCA. You may have heard of them, but more important to me, I was actually trained by my weightlifting coach, uh, a gentleman named Alfonso Duran, um, who was from Cuba. He was a Cuban emigre and, uh, he had a master of sport in track and field. And he was on the Cuban pre-select weightlifting team. And the pre-select weightlifting team was the team that they selected to travel, but hadn't yet traveled. And the only reason he didn't travel is because he would not uh, raise the hand and become a communist. And so they kept him in the country because they were afraid he would defect. Mm -hmm. So I was mentored by him for probably 96, well, I don't know, for years. Uh, every Saturday I would go up and see him and he trained me and, you know, we'd lift. I'd lift, he'd train me, and then I'd spend the day just picking his brain. So that happened until 2000, so that was four years of that, and then we kept in touch and he trained me uh, probably until the mid-2000s when um, I was just so injured from lifting that uh, I couldn't lift anymore, right? So that was one of, the, one of the reasons we made this switch to this particular program is because I was injured and kept getting injured from heavy lifting and my business partner was injured uh, and he, I don't remember why he was injured, but he had a, a chronic injury. And so we were taking these physical therapy principles and trying to get them to work for us. And um, 
because what we were doing was great for strength and conditioning, but it wasn't necessarily working for um, rehabilitation or probably not rehabilitation. Restoration would be the better word. And in my case, it was rehabilitation. So, mm -hmm. you know, I went to this RKC in 2005 and I had, I was on the tail end of getting a cortisone. I had gotten a cortisone shot in my right hip because I had torn the labrum in my right hip lifting. And that was um, some pretty severe and excruciating pain. And it took a long time to, to overcome. So in the background of kettlebells was always this, how do we, how do we get our clients the results that they want, mm -hmm. which is most of them just want to lose body fat. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. The old LGN look good naked. Yeah. And do it in such a way that they're not going to get injured. Mm -hmm. In the back of my head, I always had, uh, I took a Paul check course, uh, scientific oh. core conditioning wow. back in the mid nineties, I guess it was late night, probably 97, 98. One of the things that that stuck in my head is he said, uh, if you want to see how good of a strength and conditioning coach you really are, go visit your athletes in 10 years and see oh, where they are. Good point. Right. I thought, man, that's really, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that type of mentality was always in the back of my head, which was wow. you know, first do no harm. And then how do we build off that first do no harm? Because you know, a lot of people just don't realize that traditional strength and conditioning methods are really bodybuilding methods. Or I should yeah. say most fitness methods are really bodybuilding me methods. And uh, bodybuilders are, they're there for the aesthetics. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, aesthetics are great unless you can't use them. We have a saying here. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called uh, looks like Tarzan plays like Jane. Right. You familiar with <laughs> yeah, the, the story of Tarzan and Jane, right? So, yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> yeah. So like, what yeah, good yeah. is it if you have these huge packs and, you know, 20 inch arms, but every time you bend over to tie your shoe, your lower back goes out. Right. I think that's just worthless. Mm -hmm. And so I've always had in the, in the background of my mind is how do I overcome these injuries? And part of that is because, you know, my wife is a, a physical therapist. So I've kind of got, you know, I live in two worlds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, that is how we got into this particular um, training system. But the problem was, is, I'm an extremist. So if you tell me to do something, I'll, I will ride that horse until the horse dies. And so mm -hmm. we rode that horse really hard and we found out that the horse was already dead. Like it just didn't work. Mm -hmm. So you, I could, I personally, I passed all the check marks and pushed him even further. And I still got even more injured and more injured and more injured. Right. So um, that's how we got into that particular system. And so the kettlebell was interesting because it was in the background the entire time. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to bridge, we we're trying to, to bridge those two worlds and eventually mm -hmm. you know we left that particular physical therapy based world and st still kept the kettlebell i sold and out that, to my business partner in, in 2007 and then went out on my ah, okay and you went on, on your own yeah and and what kind of what kind of particular system was this that you were trying because most of your clients they come in to lose body fat look uh, look great naked like you mentioned same yeah. here uh and that's that's how we that's how we bait them you know it's funny thing a, a couple of months ago i decided or i thought it was a good idea to step a little bit back from it because i was a little bit blinded by the YouTube success, so to speak, I was like, "Hey, uh, we can make this work online only," which which we are. We we can make it work online only, and and it works pans out well. But the the in-house 
uh, crew is is completely different. They don't care about kettlebells. They care about looking good. And I like what you're saying, the restoration process, um, building longevity, not just look good, but also be able to live longer and healthier and stronger. So uh, then I pivoted back. I thought, let's let's step away from this loose body fat thing until I realized, hey, now we're losing clients or the business is, is coming to a halt. Come to find out, jumping back on a horse and boom, uh, it just explodes back up with clients. It's just it's just the, the fact of the matter is that's what people want, right? But here's the thing, that, that system that you're mentioning, what kind of system was this? Well, I'm not going to mention it by name. I think, mm -hmm. you know. I, yeah, yeah, I but the particulars I, of it. Yeah. But yeah, it was based on um, outdated theories of core stabilization, outdated theories of balance training, um, hmm. outdated theories of how to integrate those those types of things with strength and conditioning principles. Um, so those types of things. I don't, I don't want to get too deep mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. trenches because I might give away like what it was, right? Um, but needless to say, we we had tried all that. My my business partner used all that. Hmm. And uh, we actually transitioned into a whole nother system after that, and um, which we then transitioned out of about four years later. He and I, like I said, he and I parted ways in 2000, mm -hmm. at the end of 2007. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're now, you're solely focused on kettlebells right now? Well, kettlebells, and then I have a movement restoration system that mm. I, I built based off another movement restoration system. There was a, in 2010, there were four of us, and uh, we put together a movement restoration system, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And then two of us went on, myself and one other gentleman went on and, and built out this movement restoration system. And, you know, it's, it's very important that i mean i get that people want to look good naked but if you can't move well yeah good luck yeah. good luck right so yeah. Yeah. like you said give them what they want i bait them with what they want give them what they need exactly so my exactly. whole point is yeah is how do you look good naked well the first thing you gotta do is be strong and the second thing you gotta do is move well moving well creates the strength and then you build everything on top of that and so my focus right now is uh, basically i train guys who are over 40 um, mm -hmm. that I'll reach down and grab guys in like the 30 to 40 range as well. So mm -hmm. it's primarily family men. Mm -hmm. uh, and we focus on getting as strong as possible, building as much lean tissue functional. There's a, you know, a kind of a, a business or an industry term, right? Yeah. Usable. Yeah. Multiple. It's been, it's been so bastardized that I'm using oh, yeah. it. I use, I use the term practical. Sounds practical. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Practical. Practical, practical strength. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was using the word usable strength, but yeah. I like oh, practical. usable is yeah. also great. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm stealing practical. Yeah. So yeah. Do it. I stole it from somebody else. So it's all good. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> kind of how the industry works. Right? Yeah. Like, that's how it is. Yeah. You just make sure you give credit as you go. Right. So the funny thing, I read this in a, I read this in an Instagram comment where some, some completely unknown, somebody never heard of said, Hey, you know what? I'm using the term practical strength. I'm like, Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's pra it's practical strength, and um, you know, so many of us have been uh, positively and yet negatively impacted by bodybuilding methodology, oh. or what I call what I call meathead methodology, which is uh, train to failure, train body parts, walk around, limp around, so sore you can't move, and eventually, you know, you just tighten exactly. up, stiffen up. Exactly. Uh, and so my focus is is I have married the two, right? So mm -hmm. kettlebell training with movement restoration love it and, yeah. you know my my clients love it my customers seem to love it because they it's great you know, I keep getting more customers and yeah. um, 
current customers be, you know, do become repeat buyers. So yeah, if they um, buy into the philosophy, a lot of guys, it's interesting because a lot of guys can't buy into the philosophy. They, they stick their toe in the water and they go, this is just so foreign to me because, you know, I, I got to do my curls and I got to do my, you know, my bench press and I got to do all this stuff that, you know, Arnold did. Well, you know, Arnold was in his twenties when he did it and he was on steroids when he did it. And that was 50, 60 years ago when he did it, right? Mm -hmm. 50 you know, times were different. Mm -hmm. right? It's a different mm -hmm. world. A completely different world and yeah it, you, if, you can't do what it, you can't do as a 40 something 50 something 60 something i even have 70 year old clients who email mm -hmm. me like oh, man this is amazing you can't do at our age what we could do mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. 20s because life is totally different we have mm -hmm. different responsibilities mm -hmm. we have different life stressors and all those things impact the body as a exactly as a, right so exactly and so i mean i would maybe uh quantify this a little bit you sure can but i don't think you get a lot of return on investment and that's, then yeah, you probably hurt yourself along the way and all this stuff you know it's it's fascinating when you look at dorian yates i love that i'm a big fan of just or a huge supporter of what dorian yates says he says most of the bodybuilders that he knows at his age they're still training the same way they still have the same meathead mentality and he says gaining the biggest amount of muscle mass is not the end all be all and it's not the end goal especially as you get older you have to work on your flexibility you have to work on and one of the funny things that i always get just pops into my mind is when we talk about strength right it's it, so many folks that's why you sometimes have this uh these two camps right the, the gs camp and the heart style camp where we uh you know uh, hit in, hit each other on the head with with stuff like yeah you're not strong yeah but you don't have the endurance and funny thing is i'm always saying listen there, there's different types of strong, right? I mean, I'd like to have a strong heart. If I have a strong heart, that's that's one kind of strength. So how exactly. do I how do I build a strong heart by building up some volume with a cardiovascular exercise that also requires a little bit of strength with the kettlebell, with a snatch, for example, with a swing, for example. So, so that's that. But I love what Dorian Yates says that we have to understand that as we get older, we have to tra train differently. And just recently, another bodybuilder passed, a young guy, uh, he's a German guy, his name is Joe Stetics, uh 8.5 million followers, big, big name in the, in the uh, fitness influencer. Yeah. yeah, fitness influencer word. I think he has an, an aneurysm. So the first thing that I did when I heard about his death, I was Googling aneurysm steroids. And you have some, I think there's some uh, connection to a certain extent. And of course, now you have the guys who say, well, there's no connection at all. But here's my point. It is interesting to see that the bodybuilding world is still inspiring or influencing so many people all around the world when fact of the matter is most of them are juiced up, especially the ones that have big followings. Yep. So if I'm inspired by a guy who's juiced up, I want to look like him. Or, or I, I love how you say, uh, for the good or for the worse, how bodybuilding can influence you, or maybe it just completely wipes out your self-confidence and your, and your body image. Mm. And a funny thing is on my YouTube channel, I get these comments all the time with, yeah, but you're way too skinny. Where's your muscle mass? Blah, 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 blah. And thank God I've grown a little bit older, matured that I don't really care about it. I realized like, hey, listen, uh, muscle size is one thing, but strength and, and or, uh, being able to achieve in different areas of physical qualities and, and of human performance is something that is dear to my heart. It's not just about having big biceps. It's all about just having the whole system as a whole work as a, as a union. And funny thing is I, I know a lot of bodybuilders 
I just recently last year I uh, uh, we was visiting a, a a friend of mine, and he is a bodybuilder. And then we took a a walk, a, a long stroll, a long walk, and this guy was breathing like we were running. And I realized at that moment I was like, see, that's exactly what happens if you keep thinking that bench press is everything you need throughout the whole week, a bench press and some lat pull downs, and you don't do nothing for your heart. And we're just casually walking around. I'm not even, I don't even feel it. And this guy next to me, which I love, he's a cool guy, but he's breathing like an ox. Yep. I remember those days. I, uh, when I was, I graduated high school, I was 165 pounds. So, uh, what is that in kilos? 80 something, 75 something, yeah. 75, let's say 75 mm -hmm. kilos. Um, and three and a half years later, midway through my fourth year of college, I was 252 pounds and I would go up the stairs to my apartment and I'd get to the top of the stairs and I'd be right sweating. I'd get out of the shower, take a hot shower, middle of winter, dry off. I start sweating. And I remember going, this is not healthy. Like I can't, I can't do this. I was training for powerlifting at the time. My goal was to get to 275 because, uh, like my, I think it was the uh, strength coach at Rutgers and uh, the football strength coach, Rock Gullickson said, you'd be, you know, you'd be really good. He was a power lifter. He said, he said, for your frame and size, like you need to be 275. So I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just going to eat and lift my way to 275. <laughs> But the problem is like, yeah. you have to be able to live, right? You know, I don't, I'm here. I am like 21 years old thinking I'm going to have a heart attack at the top of the stairs. Yeah. Right. So that's but here, here, here's my here's my question, Jeff. Why? Why are we assuming that a, a person who's built at a certain size is supposed to be X? Why? I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Somebody's tall. Somebody's smaller. Somebody's we have you have folks who are naturally strong or naturally big. Right. I mean, take a look at some of the the the. Kazakhian guys or the Kazakhstan guys, these are walking behemoths, right? I, I don't know where, where they're from, probably descendants of giants, right? <laughs> yeah, they build them inside the mountains and let them yeah, use them. <laughs> right? Exactly. So there are people like this. But funny thing is I read, and uh, I don't know what it was. I think it was a biologist's opinion or a biologist's view on the human body. And he said, the human body or the human mechanism is the turtle of the animal kingdom. We are strength endurance beings. And while there are exceptions that, I mean, that doesn't mean that you're not supposed to be strong because I just recently uh, read an article from uh, Str Stronger by Science. It's a fascinating uh, aspect that they shared in the newsletter. They said that 60% of people who are currently working out are achieving their endurance goals or they are matching the endurance goals. And only 20% of those who are working out are maxing out or achieving their strength goals. So. I think we still have a lot of room to 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 bring strength into the world of you know the typical cardiovascular stuff right just running or just cardio machines or, or whatever have you but i don't think it's the way of the bodybuilding type of, of of realm right i mean bodybuilding like you said it's for the looks it's for the aesthetics you have to follow certain principles in order to blow up the muscles but this doesn't mean that you are strong now And what do martial artists say? They say, man, I love playing with a bodybuilder because these are the easiest targets. Yeah. They're so they're gassed after a couple of minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're big targets. They don't move well. Yeah. Right. And they have no endurance. So 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because you brought up a, a very good point there. We have actually two worlds that we have to bridge. We have we have the bodybuilding world and then we have the aerobics world, right? And Bill Phillips tried to do, he tried to bridge the two two worlds back in the mid 90s, early 2000s, the Body for Life program. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it was, you know, he made millions of dollars, like hundreds of millions of dollars off that. And yeah. was his, what was his name? Bill Phillips. And it Bill was Phillips, uh, yeah, this, yeah, EAS. If you know yeah. creatine, you know Bill Phillips and EAS because they were the first company to mass market creatine. Ah, uh, right, yeah. And uh, so he yeah. built he built his business off of marketing creatine first and foremost, and then he built this program called Body for Life, and it was a transformation program. It was a twelve week, I think it was a twelve week transformation program. And so the foundation was bodybuilding, and then high intensity interval training mixed with some low intensity steady state or list training. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was a five, six day a week program, but it was bodybuilding aerobics, bodybuilding mm -hmm. aerobics. And, mm -hmm. and one of the things that I appreciated about uh, kettlebells is, you know, a lot of people don't think they have the ability to work out six to seven hours, maybe 10 hours a week. Okay. And mm -hmm. that's a whole nother, that's a yeah. whole nother yeah. argument right there, a whole nother conversation, yeah. but the kettlebell, marries the funny two. and funny thing uh, jeff you know what i say when people tell me this i tell them okay pull up your phone yeah show me the screen time app exactly right and then i guarantee you we can cut out some hours everybody spends way too much time on that social media crap so that's that's, that's and then and then it's always like okay you got me see yeah. <laughs> even even family fathers or mothers they're like i don't have no time you probably spend way too much time on instagram right yeah it's uh the stats. everybody does right yeah yeah <laughs> not me i hate instagram man I, no, I, that's good that's I hate, good i hate IG. yeah so i mean but you bring that up right the average i don't know what it is in europe but in america the, i think the average american spends about five and a half hours a day on social media and touches the phone about 2500 times a day that's just it, it's that just mind-blowing i i, I yeah. think if if you would just take 50 percent of that time that you spend on your phone and dedicate it to a craft or to a language you probably learn like five languages in a, in a year because it's just it, it's just it's a time-sucking vampire that that's yeah. what they are and you yeah. really have to i, I funny thing is uh, just on a side note since i'm now uh, i've read a couple of books on marketing and, and business and i'm now realizing that some of some of the time that i spend in my business are not um uh, as valuable for money making uh opportunities such as you know building ads working on my offer uh, writing better offers, writing better ads, writing better copy just to get more clients in. Instead, I, I'm spending too much time on, on my minute stuff, that, that, that busy work, right? Which uh, led to a realization that, wow, it's not about posting reels or posting videos on YouTube. Even though since our YouTube channel is growing and we now use it as a solid pillar and base in the business, it has to be at least one video per week to get the channel going because it's a workhorse. And we right. have to feed it. So in that regard, I see most definitely my time is well spent. And when it comes to Instagram, okay, we can also say uh, um, if I if I produce a couple of reels and then I can re retarget that this audience for our uh, lead generation program for 30 days of kettlebells or the 30 day kettlebell challenge, that's also worth my time. But fact of the matter is, I am really, really cutting down my time on on these on these apps. 
and making it a priority that if I open it, especially Instagram, if I open it, it's all about doing the reel, uh, making the production, sharing it, then sharing it on TikTok, sharing it on YouTube, and then closing the shit out of it. Oh, yeah. I rarely curse, but the idea is to, to make sure I, I just stay away from these vampires as much as I can. Smart move, yeah. And I, and I'm, I don't always succeed in it. It's, it, and just recently I had a conversation with my girlfriend. I was like, let, let, let's uh, compare screen time. And she was like, four hours on Instagram? I was like, see? And she even has the limit where the app is telling you, okay, you now spend 15 minutes on the app. <laughs> what does everybody do? Get out of here. Ignore. <laughs> Ignore. <laughs> Keep scrolling. The death scroll keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. that's what it is. Well, and, you know, that's getting back to your point. Um, about why everybody thinks they have to be big, right? The influencers on Instagram are like, hey, look at me. Yeah. Look at me. I'm, I'm huge. And you know what? If you buy my stuff, you'll be huge too. No, you have good genetics and you have a pharmaceutical bill, right? That's so. just that's just the truth. I, I, it's, you, it's one thing that you share your accomplishments on, on social media or that you really have a business where you're helping people and now you leverage the power of social media. I mean, if you do it, good on you. But if you are a juiced up Instagram fitness model, selling online coaching, it's, even though the coaching might be good, you know, people, I think people tune into your stuff because they wanna look like you, not because they wanna look a little bit better. I, I, I don't know. In our case, what we do is we put our clients at the forefront of the ads because people can identify themselves with these people. Right. I, I have stopped. I've stopped putting myself on the ad. If I do it, I just talk about kettlebells, for example. Hey, talk about the product. Talk about how cool kettlebells are. But it's not about the looks. I'm. I'm. Even though people want to look a certain way, I understand that people can identify themselves way better with normal people. And if you're able to achieve results with normal people, and you can share them online, I think that's. I think it just has a better track record. But that's again another discussion. But I. I get where you're coming from. It's this this idea that we always have to look big and and in the kettlebell world and you mentioned this about uh spending too much time on the workout with with kettlebells right so please keep that thought uh, that thought but it's it's another thing that you see a lot of bulky really it's hard to uh differentiate it or or, or see it but sometimes it looks to me also juiced up folks swinging kettlebells and then i'm like listen the kettlebell does build muscle it's a weight so if you treat it for hypertrophy reasons it will build muscle right but it is a tool meant for a different purpose so you won't look like a bodybuilder if you swing and snatch weights you'll never look like this correct so it's another illusion to a certain extent where people think wow i can look like this well yeah yeah right. well, what were you doing before you touched the kettlebell me no, I mean, when we're uh, talking uh, about this, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? it's what, what were you doing? Exactly, exactly. You that I get you. Bed, yeah, I get right? you. And the Most answer definitely. is, you were, you know, you were training like a bodybuilder. Maybe you had, a, you know, maybe you played college football. So you had strength and conditioning background, mm -hmm. which you, know, you have a familiarity with Olympic lifts. So you can, I mean, that was my, that's what made kettlebell so easy for me is my familiarity and my background. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe you had that familiarity. And you can bring it, but you're not showing people that. You're you're giving them the false impression that hey, all you gotta do is like you said, a swing and snatch, and you'll look just like me. But that's what do they call that? Misrepresentation. 
Mm-hmm. Untruth, I think. I think that's mm-hmm. what some people call it, right? No, it's mis- it's mis- misleading. 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 Just like, just like. No, I don't want to uh, step on nobody's toes here, but I think it's a simple. It's a similar situation when you are selling a program or showing people very fancy exercises with kettlebells, really fancy mm-hmm. ones, and now. For the sake of looking like a Hollywood coach who always has to reinvent the wheel and then sell the program because it's the next big thing, yeah. you are now misleading your clients with your program or with your coaching because I can guarantee you, try a couple of these flows with normal people. And, and here's, here's an f- interesting um, realization that I had. The people who spend the most money are the ones who are in the most pain. So these are usually the ones who are a little bit older, mm-hmm. have tried many things in their life that didn't work, and these are the ones who are now willing to spend a little bit more money in order to achieve their result. And these are typical folks who are not very, who don't have a lot of kinesthetic literacy, or maybe they do, they just don't know it. But the fact of the matter is, these are complete novices and beginners, and they have a huge pain point. And our job as a coach or as a business, rather, is to find a solution for that pain point. Yeah, correct. So my understanding is then, if this person signs up with you, you have to do your due diligence. Like you said, do no harm, but also don't, wait no, don't waste no time. Correct. So if they walk into your gym, you have to give them, you are, you are responsible and you're even called to you're forced to give them the most bang for the buck exercises in the time that they spend with you right you you mentioned that the barbells are um, just barbells are are require a lot of time and technique right especially the, the olympic lifts which, the olympic lifts yeah right M- most definitely so that's exactly why in our sessions we use the basics 99 percent of the time when we teach a snatch we teach it to folks who are a little bit more advanced and we rarely do stuff where people, ha- where people have to think too much. We, it's, yes, it's about the skills. They have to learn it and they have to understand it. But I think as a coach, especially when you work with normal people, and I'd like to get your take on it, especially when you work with average normal people who are willing to spend money to get a solution for their problem, then you have to find a perfect balance between giving them a lot of value for the time that they come in for the training plus the skill practice. But right. the skill practice should not, in my opinion and in my experience, should not overweigh the time that they spend on training unless you have somebody who walks in and says, listen, I want to learn everything about kettlebells. It's not about the body. It's not about the looks. I want to learn kettlebells. What do you think of this? I agree 100%. I mean, I, I'm trying to think, and again, it's, it's a little early here, so my brain's not firing on all cylinders, so I apologize to you and your, your <laughs> listeners, but... Um, you know, I can honestly say I've never had one person come to me in 30 years. Whew, man, that lands hard. Uh, You're still young. Say, <laughs> You're still young. That's right. I still, I'm, I'm really young, right? Like, <laughs> I, got plenty of, I got plenty of juice plenty left. Plenty of time. Yeah, yeah. Plenty yeah. Of time. So um, I've never had anybody come to me and say, hey, you know what? I want you to train me to be um, an Olympic gold medalist. Now I've trained I've trained athletes who have been semi pros. I've trained pros, right? I've trained high school athletes, and obviously I trained college athletes. Even trained some little guys, some middle school athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
um, you know, my son is 12. He does BJJ. Mm. Um, I train a BJJ kid who's like 16. Um, I train my son and a couple of his friends, right? Um, every once in a while, but nobody has come to me from ground zero and said, Hey, I've got all the money in the world and I want to be an Olympic gold medalist, right? Nobody's, nobody's ever done that. And maybe I'm fishing in the wrong pond, right? So, you know, all right, Hey, I got to go. I've got to go hit some marketing to go find this gold medalist and make a name for myself. See you guys later. <laughs> exactly. um, it's always been, Hey yeah. man, you know what? I've got like 20 pounds. I need to get off and I've been struggling exactly. to sink 20 pounds. Right. Or I got 30 pounds or in some cases like, man, I got this back issue that just won't go away. Right. Or I've got this knee issue that just won't go away or, or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So my goal is always, like you said, to start them with the most efficient exercise, exercise plan possible. I want to get them a quick win. Mm -hmm. I always want a client to walk away going, man, that was great. I feel better than when I started. And this has been um, primarily how I keep clients. I, I don't set out to keep clients. Like I build a relationship with clients and I'm mm -hmm. there to serve them. Mm -hmm. And when they think I've, I'm done serving them, then, you know, that relationship moves on. Right. But I've got one client I started with in 2001 in North Carolina, and we now train online. And what is this? 2023. We took a little hiatus for about six years, but so I've known this, I've known this lady for over 20 years, right? We've done everything together. She was one of my, we still joke about the kettlebell, the, you know, the smashing, the bruises on the back of the arms. We wore them as badges of armor, you know, oh, you do kettlebells. That's right. I do kettlebells. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, right. uh, <laughs> but it's exactly. always about getting them the, the quick wins so they can buy into the program, right? So they remain motivated and they see the results. So hopefully that answers your question. Most definitely. And it's just, I, I love, uh, I heard an expression once that said, um, just imagine you want to open up a hot dog stand and what do you think is the best crowd? And then I think a professor was asking his students and then folks are like, well, in front of an arena, well, in front of a, uh, in, in, in a business section of a, of a city from the banks. And he was like, you're all wrong. All wrong. A hungry crowd. Right. That's it. So if, if you are in a market, and I, that's another thing that I've learned about markets. So if you are in a market that is growing and that has potential, you are, I, that's one of the prerequisites to write a good offer and to have a good business. But if you are in a market that's starving, for example, the newspaper business, which seems to be starving and dying, or the radio business, which is probably all yeah. that kind of stuff, which is replaced by the internet, then you are in the starving or dying market and then you have to pivot and, and adapt. So that's, but that's funny thing is that's, that's stuff that has nothing to do with kettlebells. And I, I think it's fascinating that you've mentioned that your guys were like, Hey, I know, I don't know. I know my, I, I need my curls and stuff. And one thing that I have pivoted away from or that I'm trying and I'm, that I'm actually pivoting away, away from is from mentioning the program all by itself and just talking about the value that I am able to provide them. And not even mentioning the program, not even mentioning the exercises, not even mentioning the, the, or the kettlebell, just on a side note. And just giving them as much value as, they, as, they, uh, uh, as I can, giving them all of the benefits that they can achieve. Because 
I've heard this expression too, which I find so fascinating. That is, if you sell a vacation to the client to Bali or to uh, Vietnam or whatever have you, or to the Caribbean, you do not tell them, hey, there's going to be long waiting times. <laughs> there's a long flight. Uh, right. You're going you to be uncomfortable. You're going to be... <laughs> guy who who really should have bought two seats you know exactly it's gonna be awful but then you're gonna enjoy it but you all you talk about the beaches you talk about the 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 awesome time that you're gonna spend with your wife there and stuff so that's exactly how i'm now as well trying to pivot away from especially to this crowd who just wants to get in shape because i'm always so hung up on kettlebells and i can't stop talking about it which is great if i have a crowd that's only interested in kettlebells but i also have a crowd who's just interested in, in getting in shape so then I'm, I'm switching uh, the, or pivoting the conversation, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I mean, fortunately, now you, you know, you've got a background in kettlebell training and a strong background in kettlebell training. And so now, I mean, you know, the secret, quote unquote, is the kettlebell is arguably the best tool for getting in shape, quote unquote, in shape, right? In the shortest amount of time, if you know how to use it and if you know how to program it. Exactly. If you don't, it's just another tool. It's like a rock, right? Exactly. So, well, that's that's always been the attraction to me for kettlebells, right? It's, it, one of the biggest attractions uh, attractions to me for kettlebells is the ease on the joints, it's the plyometric effect, virtual force, right, and the increased loading on the posterior chain and the you know the anterior chain, right. And if you go unilateral training, mm -hmm. right, the asymmetrical loading mm -hmm. in the the, the uh, fascial slings, right, the sling systems mm -hmm. of the body. Mm -hmm which make you a stronger, more functional human being. And because that's more energetically demanding, right? You're going to burn more calories than you would if you just did like the elliptical, right? So, so and you're gonna have more usable, practical strength, right? There's the practical strength than if you trained as a bodybuilder, you know, you did 30 minutes of bodybuilding and then tacked on 30 minutes of cardio on the back end. The typical right? you stuff. Take all yep. that, you can crush it into a, a 20 or 30 minute solid kettlebell program. And you, for me, that's the attraction of the kettlebell, right? It's, it's the combination of the Olympic lifts. It's the time efficiency. And it's I can train for maximum strength. I can train for muscle hypertrophy. I can train for power. I can train strength endurance. I can train power endurance. I can train cardiovascular endurance. I can train everything I need to train with one simple little piece of equipment if I know how to program it correctly. Exactly. And that's where most of the fitness world misses out. Even today, right? They're still doing, they're over there doing curls with it and they're doing their lateral raises with it. And oh, hey, there's this cool thing called a goblet squat. You can do that. So I'm going to do that. And then it's a doorstop. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But you know from your GS background that and it's energetically intensive. And if you want to pull some body fat off, yeah, just give somebody some high rep swings for a little, you know, Most definitely. sets of high rep swings. And another thing that I see as a huge benefit is you have people standing. Yes. It's, it's, it, it what I. As opposed yeah. to what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. having a conversation. So right, make sure you're standing. They said, <laughs> sit down. Yes, yeah. exactly. But here's the point i was um i started my fitness journey as a fitness instructor so before that i was really hooked on training mm -hmm. I, I was i was that guy who filled out the whole sheet of paper that was given to me by the trainer which normally just lands in the in in the in the in the catalog and never gets opened again but i always pulled it out and i filled it and once i got it full i get, went to my trainer i was like i got it full let's take it let's do a new training 
And I was really looking forward to these to these moments because I was so hooked on it. And then uh, I started working in the business or in the fitness world in that regard. And I quickly realized, bro, this has nothing to do with sharing your passion of fitness. This has everything to do to sell a membership to a facility that people can use for two weeks and then they don't use it ever again. And this is the major part of running a, or let's say like a commercial gym. Exactly right. It's yeah. not about, and that's just the plain truth. And I don't care what I, I've got, I've gotten in real trouble with gym owners, but that's just the plain truth. If you are not taking your time to work with people on a regular basis, and doesn't even have to be personal training, but just on a regular, very frequent basis to teach them the stuff and work with them, then you are doing your 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 members a disservice because they're funny thing is where are gym fails coming from gym fails are coming from the fact that people do not know how to use your equipment a gym fail will never happen in my gym because people never use equipment without my supervision so the idea is people go into the gym they sit down that and that's another problem that i've realized they sit down they come from their desk jobs sitting all day then they come into the gym and they sit again. Yep. They sit on, on the leg press, they sit on the leg curls, they sit on the leg extension, on, on, even on the biceps machine. Bro, man, you can stand up and do some curls standing. No, man, hey, everything's- Hey, let's every not forget about the pec deck. You have to sit to be able to get I, that squeeze to get those inner pecs, you know what I'm saying? Exactly, exactly, to, 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 grow, the to grow the inner the inner pec, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you mention the bike? Because you can sit down and ride the bike. The, the, yeah, yeah, the, 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 the seated bike, the, the stationary bike, right? Stationary bike. <laughs> The bike's nowhere. <laughs> no, Takes you nowhere. Put this little VR screen on the front of your bike. Right? Imagine this. The bike is going to tilt, and you can pretend to go someplace. You know? And now uh, we use a we use a wind machine. We use a snowing machine just to give you the feeling, man. Just pick your right. bike and go outside. That's exactly but, right. But that's 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 just a funny thing. I realized this, so I went out of this business. I was like, this is impossible. We cannot help clients. And then I started this thing, and now with kettlebells, it's like you mentioned. It's completely different. Uh, we just started with another client just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he's uh, he's overweight, so we started training, focusing all about uh, on on uh, losing and, and shedding uh, pounds and getting stronger. And he told me, he was like, wow, finally something that I enjoy. Yeah. Because it's so taxing on your system. I mean, of course, if you dose it right, right, the minimal effective dose, so you don't want to destroy your clients. It's all about the minimal effective dose, but even the minimum will will force your clients to use connections or to build connections from their brain to the muscles that they never had before or that they, that they never even thought about before. So yes, there's skill involved and yes, there's a learning curve, but the fact that they're so consumed with these 45 minutes of training means that when they leave, like you said, they'd be like, wow, this was awesome. And so many times they walk up to the gym and they say, Listen, today I'm not motivated. And I always say the same thing. I say, I told you, these days will come. You won't be motivated, but you're showing up. That's awesome. So then we do the workout and not not all the time, but in many cases they leave and they say, thank God I came. It was exactly yeah. what I needed. Yeah. Yeah, that's man, spot on. It's the discipline of showing up. The discipline trumps the motivation. I've had many conversations with that, mm -hmm. you know clients just like that i don't feel like working out today good just come on in we'll just we'll warm you up and see how you feel and they'll always leave and they're like man i feel great thanks for 
thanks for being here and you know mm-hmm. holding me accountable exactly that's what people need yeah uh i'd like to pivot the conversation a little bit to your story with um, first of all you mentioned paul check right uh, what do you think what do you think of him i think i saw a video i saw a lot of stuff about him and he saw one of one of his videos where he said where he seems to be one of the strongest guys ever to live or something like that and what's your take on on paul check well that's a that's a tough question i think he's done the fitness industry a lot of good mm-hmm. um i think he or at least he attempted to um mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, I, I don't really think too much about him. So I really don't, mm, okay. I mean, I stopped, he had this, uh, he put together the Czech Institute. Yeah, exactly. The Czech Institute. Early 2000s. And, mm-hmm. um, all right. So <clears throat> I, I'm a very practical guy. Like I don't, I'm a proof in the pudding. The proof of the pudding is in the eating kind of guy, right? Like I used to get caught up in people who had um, letters after their names and those sorts of things, right? Mm. Like, oh man, I know I've got my experiences, but this guy, he's smarter than me, right? He's not as strong as me and he's not as lean as me and he's not as fast as me. And, uh, you know, he's probably not as conditioned as me, but he's got those letters after his name. I used to get caught Mm. up in that. (laughs) Yeah. And I've gotten, I've wasted tens of thousands of dollars following down those types of paths, right? Mm. And years, I've shaved years off my life. <laughs> so, I don't want to say I've shaved years off my life, but I've wasted a lot of time, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Now, fortunately, all that stuff has been redeemed and, you know, I can use it in other ways, but mm. Mm. I, I will, the, I was very tempted to go down Paul's four level check uh, certification. And then I went to a Swiss seminar, which was, uh, what does Swiss stand for? A guy named Dr. Ken Kinnikin out of a, uh, Canada put together these, these conferences called Swiss uh, weight instruction. It was a seminar for, for uh, all things, weight training and strength and conditioning. It was really well done. And uh, I talked to the late Dr. Mel Sif. He was presenting at, at one of these Swiss conferences. And this was, I want to say I was still lived in New Jersey, maybe, or I just moved from New Jersey to North Carolina. So it's probably around 2001, 2002. And uh, I went to the Swiss conference and I was talking to Mel Sif about drawing the belly button in to activate the TVA for core stability and strength training. Now, for those of you guys who don't know who Dr. Mel Sif is, he is a legend. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he was, he passed about mm-hmm. 15, 20 years ago uh, at a very early age. He wrote the seminal volume on all things sports science with Dr. Yuri Verashansky called mm-hmm. Super Training. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And so Mel Sif gave this presentation. I don't even remember what the presentation was about. Right. But at that time, Mel Sif, Mel Sif was a crazy guy. He's about, he was a former uh, competitive weightlifter. He was a uh, doctor. Uh, he had a PhD in engineering. So he's a mechanical engineer who worked as a mechanical engineer and then taught uh, mechanical engineering at the, I think the university of Witzwatersrand in South America, uh, South Africa, not South America, South, South mm. Africa. Mm. So, and he's just kind of like this, he kind of reminds me of Doc Brown from uh, Back to the Future. Back to the guy, Future. Right? Yeah. Except he's got, he's got glasses. <laughs> his hair is, you know, it's just kind of wild and all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And, and Mel Sif is 55 years old. 
or older. I think he's at least 55. And this is 20 years ago. Here I am. I'm like, I'm not even 30 yet. Right. And I'm talking to this guy. Maybe I was like 28, 29. And Mel Sith is standing. We finish, he finishes the presentation. There's a bunch of us um, standing around Mel asking him a bunch of questions. And the first thing he does is he goes, oh, check this out. He goes, uh, and he's talking about pain and how pain operates in the body and blah, 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 blah. And he starts doing on a desk, one-legged jumping pistol squats in front of everybody. He's 55 years old. He goes, and by the way, I've got no cartilage in this knee. And he's doing repeated. And then I'm like, I'm going like that. I'm like, Mike, my goodness, I can't do that. I'm toy, I'm like an Olympic lifter, right? I can't do this stuff. What the and so and so then I and he's got this whole book called Facts and Fallacies of, of um physical training or something. Mm. Facts and fallacies and myths or something like that, where he debunks a lot of the popular stuff. So I say, I say, Dr. Sif, um, what do you think about this whole drawing in your belly button before you do anything in order to activate the TVA for core stability? He goes, Oh, it's garbage. I said, well, what really? Well, you know, <laughs> this is all in relation to Paul check. You're like, man, this is a long story, dude. I know, but listen, <laughs> proof of the puddings in the eating. I got this 55 year old man mm. and he goes, <clears throat> he goes here, look, I'll show you. And he goes, he goes, let's wrestle. So we tie up and we got all these people around us, right? We're tied up and he goes, <laughs> yeah. he goes all right, he goes, let's now. go. Let's go. Like, now he goes, pull your belly button to your spine. All right. And I want you to try and move me around as, and try and resist me. And so I pull my belly button in my spine. I'm trying and I, I can't, you know, he's like pushing me all over the place. And I'm a big dude. I'm still, I'm still training for weightlifting, right? I'm on 100, 100, uh, 230 pounds, 105 kilos. I'm in that range, mm -hmm. right? So 102, 105 kilos, which really isn't that big. I mean, it's big compared to what I am now, right? And, uh, and Mel is probably, Dr. Sif is probably, if he was 90 kilos, I'd be shocked. So he's mm -hmm. tall and lanky and lean. Mm -hmm. He's pushing me all over the place with my belly button pulled in. He goes, okay, now don't do anything. He's like, just resist me and push me around. And sure enough, man, I was able to move him all over the place. He said, that is, that is a misapplication of what is supposed to happen to create core stability. And so at that point, I just kind of checked out. I thought, well, thank you. You know, you saved me however many mm -hmm tens of thousands of dollars, the check course was going to be. Hmm. So. so what, what is the rationale behind this belly button thing and how, and, and, and what's the actual way that we should contract the core or make sure we are stable? I mean, I have, I have an idea, but. Now, now you're going down a rabbit hole. So now we're going <laughs> to go down a rabbit hole. We're going to kick, we're going to kick over some sacred cows and all kinds of fun stuff. <laughs> kick some sacred cows. Yeah. Uh, or kill some sacred. We're going to yeah, tip yeah. some sacred cows. Slaughter them. Slaughter them. <laughs> We're going to yeah. sacred cow tipping. So uh, there was some research done in the mid 90s. Jules Hodges, excuse me, Jules Hodge and Richardson were three physical therapists down in Australia. Hmm. And what they found is in low back pain patients, they, they did EMG analysis and they found that the timing of the transverse abdominis, which is a muscle, it's like a corset-like muscle, which is uh, part of what we know as the inner unit, which is a group of muscles that form essentially a compressible, non-compressible, excuse me, non-compressible cylinder, mm -hmm. right? Which creates core stability, which then creates a, a structure around which your body can transmit, absorb, and produce force, mm -hmm. okay? That's 
that's the role of the the inner unit or when we talk about deep core function mm -hmm. so what they found is when they when they put these electrodes into back pain patients they found that there was a lag time between the tva and the rest of the muscles what they found is is the rest of the muscles of the body i i believe i've got this correct so it's been 25 years since i've looked at this research mm -hmm. um what is supposed to happen is your TVA, your transversus is supposed to subconsciously and automatically contract before like milliseconds before any other muscle contraction to create that core stability along with other muscles. Mm -hmm. And what they found in back patients was, is there was a lag time. In other words, it didn't fire when it was supposed to. And so they reach, they taught people to retrain the TVA by pulling the belly button to the spine and they would use a, ah. a blood pressure cuff, right? And so what you do is you lie on your stomach on this blood pressure cuff or lie on your back and put the blood pressure cuff underneath your body. And you would uh, fill the blood pressure cuff up to, I can't remember what it was like 30, 30 millimeters millimoles mm -hmm. or whatever it is of mercury. Uh, and you would, you would try and pull the TBA in and hold that and hold, and that's how you would retrain and you do that for reps or time or whatever. And that's, mm. that's one of the ways you retrained your transversus. So, uh, the problem was, is it sounded good in theory, but as people worked it out in the real world, it just didn't, didn't mm. work, not in strength sports. So, and then Dr. McGill, I'm sure you've heard of Dr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, had a conversation with him on a podcast. Yeah. As well. Like super yeah. smart guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. He, he debunked that. that, right? And so with the, with the concept yeah. of racing. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, what, so. what, what just comes to mind is the first thing that I thought about as you were mentioning these physiotherapists is this other idea of knees not going over the toes, which, which makes sense if you have patellofemoral pain syndrome or you just have a knee issue and it just hurts when you start bending it. So then what, may, what makes sense, and that's exactly what I think this myth comes from, is a physiotherapist who, in my opinion, understood biomechanics and said, listen, if you wanna train your legs, push your hips back, go into a strong hinge, and then bend your knees, make sure your, your, uh, your tibia doesn't move forward so we don't press, put pressure on the knees, and build strength in your hips. So for me, that sounds like a, a temporary solution for a person who's suffering a particular condition, but not a generalist approach to everybody. That, that's exactly what this idea that you've now shared from these three physiotherapists for people who cannot activate their TVA. The first thing that comes to mind when you, have, when you work with people is, it's no wonder you don't need, I don't need no scientific evidence to prove that people are not able to activate their muscles. <laughs> Right. especially especially people and and here's here's my thinking you have low back pain patients i'm assuming they have never trained or rarely trained i'm assuming they have bad movement habits like mcgill is pointing out your bad movement habits are what contributing to back pain so you have a specific set of the of the population that is suffering from problem that not everybody suffers from but when i see it in the gym we we have this all the time when I demonstrate the hinge, I have not, I have so many people, I call it knee dominant. They just start bending their knees forward. I'm like, you're not using your hips. 
you're just bending your knees forward without putting pressure on your hips. You're now putting pressure on your quads and on your knees. Is that how you sit on the toilet? No, you don't. You hinge and then you squat. So that's what we have to now program into your brain to learn it um, consciously, not unconsciously. And so that's, that's where I think the knees over toes idea comes from. And now you have the other extreme that says, well, knees, knees have always to go over the toes. And then I'm like, yeah, but you have people who experience pain. So then they have to build, in my opinion, strengthen the hips first in the strongest muscles, which then radiates towards the quads and the knees. And then you can try to push the knees over the toes. And funny thing, I'm having a conversation with Andrew Charniga, Bert Charniga. He's a... <laughs> He runs a, a blog that's called, uh, called sportivnipress.com. Yeah. And he just signed up for the podcast. Really looking forward to it. Excellent. And he's a weightlifting professional. And he has all these great blog posts about how the muscles of the shank work and how important it is that the knees move over the toes. How you have so many people think that this is a, a, a one of the seven deadly sins, right? <laughs> but then you look at weightlifters and he makes such a gr great case. Look at weightlifters when they pull the weight up into the clean and then they really drop down into this deep squat. And then you see, see the shins moving forward, the knees moving forward, even the feet collapsing inwards to catch the weight. Mm -hmm. Yet you yeah. have these folks really experiencing any injuries in the shank or in the ankles or in the knees, right? Yeah. Which is so fascinating. It's funny that you bring that up because I suffered from 25 years of chronic bilateral knee pain. And uh, I for, I didn't squat the first couple of years of when I lifted. So I started lifting because I broke my left arm wrestling. And that was my junior of high school. So I guess it was like 15. And back then, right, we did, I was influenced by talking about the, the influence of bodybuilding. So I was influenced by bodybuilding and for legs, you ran. Right. So, uh, you legs, you right? <laughs> bodybuilding in the gym and you <laughs> yes. your legs, right? You so, walk. Uh, That's enough. You, you walk. walk. And, then, and then my senior year, I had a, I had, I just missed a, a devastating knee injury. I, I dislocated my kneecap. So my kneecap got pulled out of the groove, out of the trochlear groove and ran. Apologize for blocking the camera there. I uh, ran about a third of the way up my leg and my coach had to pull that back in and I didn't get any therapy for it, but it turned out that I, I punched a hole in the cartilage underneath the patella. Uh -huh. And so from that point on, I had a pinch at about 30 degrees of knee flexion. Uh -huh. And I also had, I, I'd been going to the doctor for knee pain, but it was interesting because of that, I was taught that the best, that you never go, the knees never go over the toes. And the reason you have knee pain is because your knees are going over your toes. So, you know, you got to sit back like a power lifter. So you hinge into your squat Exactly. Right. And then your knees will be fine. Well, well, what happens when you do that and your knees get worse? And that's what that's what I experienced in uh Good point. Yeah. I guess about 1994. And I went to I went to the doctor and he said, Oh, you know what? I've got the perfect protocol for you. I'm the orthopedic surgeon. I work with I work with the New York Jets, which is an American football team, and this is the protocol I use for their guys who have PFP, patellofemoral, uh mm -hmm. PFP. Yeah. Oh, but the femoral yeah, pain PFP, syndrome, telephemoral yeah. pain, right? Uh -huh. Which is yeah. what you have. And so you do this and you're going to be right as rain. Well, well, really it just, it unloaded six weeks of squatting. Right. And then that's when I started looking at Olympic lifters because everybody said, don't squat below. You can't break, you, you know, exactly. as a power, 
as a powerlifter, you are in the danger zone by going below that yes, 90, 90. Yes, yes. The shin and is I'm, not supposed to move forward. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You got to sit back and let the yes. hips take load. And I'm looking yes. at these. I'm yes. looking at these Olympic lifters. And these guys have the biggest freaking quads I've ever yeah. seen. Right, like exactly. to rival Olymp uh, to, to rival bodybuilders, and in many cases better. And I'm going, but wait, they're doing the exact thing you're telling me not to do. So who am I going to listen to? I'm gonna <laughs> exactly. Listen to this egghead, right? Who's got skinny legs? Yes, right. And whose program yes. protocol isn't working for me? Or am I going to look out here in the wild, in the real world, exactly, and see what's really going on? And so I taught myself how to how to move from a powerlifting hip dominant squat to um, as close as I possibly could, an Olympic lifting upright squat. Mm, what was mm. interesting, as soon as I got those knees forward over the toes, that knee pain started to disappear. The, the, you are describing exactly what uh, Andrew or Bocciarniga is saying. And I want to I want to uh, uh, share this article because I just opened it up and so you can see it. And for, for everybody who's on Spotify, uh, you have to really switch to the video in order for, for you to see this. So this is the article. Can you see it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is what he says. Muscles of the shank, movement of the shin, and susceptibility to lower extremity injury. And just to make it, I, I want to just run through it shortly. He says in these two images, right, where you have one basketball player or these two basketball players, he says from this little movement right here, you see the knees behind the toes. And in the second image, the knees moves uh, over the toes. And here the same, right? First left image is... Uh, safe how they would uh, call it and then you see the knees moving forward he says this is a relatively benign circumstance and what happens they have achilles rupture from this movement and what he points to the fact is and I, that's why i love that's why i had to I have to get him on the podcast because he says the problem is you are creating an imbalance between the muscles of the, the, the shank or the, the anterior, uh, the tibialis anterior, the muscles mm -hmm. right in front of the shin. Because you never move, and, and I, I think he, he also goes uh, really a step deeper. He says, the muscles, the tibialis anterior is, is a knee bending muscle. So the tibialis anterior has the ability to bend the knee because when you move it forward, what does the shank or what does the shin do? It pulls the, the shin forward, the right. tibialis anterior, and what happens? The knee starts bending because it's pulling it forward, right? So right. fascinating stuff. And then yeah. at the end he says, watch this image right here. Mm -hmm. And that's just exactly, that. that's just, I showed this, <laughs> I remember I had a, uh, we were certifying a group of physiotherapists in, in Basel, in Switzerland, and, to, uh, and I showed them this image, and they all almost died. Yeah, their, their minds were... Their minds were blown. And they were trying to explain. It's funny how... Yeah, but you know, from a natural standpoint, blah, 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 I was like, watch this. Yeah. Watch this. This is... How many weight... How, how much kilos? He has 250% of his body weight. Yeah. On on the knees, on yeah. the shank. And even, and funny thing is you're like, and, and what I love is when we're so focused on our feet, right? The feet are not supposed to move inward. They're not supposed to move outward, but look at these guys here. Yeah, I know. Look at what they do. Uh, where is this image? Here, how they are, uh, maybe it's a little bit more down. 
Yeah, right here. Watch. See? Yeah. How they are moving really on, on the sides of their feet or really outside and inside their feet. And what he just basically explains at the end of the day is he says, the funny thing is you have the NFL, the NBA, they have dedicated areas or dedicated centers of injury injury treatment because it happens so often. And then they think the solution is in the shoe or in whatever they whatever have you. And then they you have these football players buy these in expensively sh expensive shoes that are supposed to and, and then they tape their feet. They tape the tape, yeah. tape the ankles, do everything and they are preventing the the shank from moving right. naturally. Yep. What do you expect is supposed to happen? And I he lays it out so clearly, I don't get it. What's hard to understand? These are plain facts. Yeah, well, it's it's perspective, right? It's your mm. paradigm, the I, lens yeah. through which you view your world, right? And it's myopic. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people just they don't want to admit that they're wrong. They'd mm. rather they'd rather be right and suffer the consequences of thinking that they're right than to admit that they're wrong. That's it. Like the, one of the best things you can do for yourself is. Prove yourself wrong. I mean, that's a whole scientific method. Like the, exactly. the exactly. scientific method used to be prove yourself wrong. Now used used to be. Right. Used to be. Exactly. Yeah. Before COVID, used to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now it's prove yourself right. Exactly. Yeah. So, we don't want to listen to dissenting opinions. We just want to hear everybody who's who is on right. in our boat. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So wow. um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I've got a lot of ideas and thoughts on foot position, um, body position, pressure, um, you know, knees. One of the things that I found out with, with knee pain is knee pain is directly related. So a lot of people will look at the ankle and they'll try and mobilize the ankle or they'll try and mobilize the hip and, and strengthen the hip. Mm -hmm. But all those are distal components mm -hmm. that are subject to what's going on inside the core. Mm -hmm. right? So core dysfunction also promotes mm knee mm. pain, knee issues. So for example, mm. we're sitting here, we're sitting down, most people sit down all day long, right? Mm. Sitting down inhibits respiratory function, full respiratory function, mm. the full inhalation and exhalation. Mm. That inhibits the function of your deep inner unit, your deep core musculature. That inhibits the function of your abdominals, right? And all your core musculature, which then inhibits the function of your hips, and all the muscles in the lower extremities. And what's really interesting is, um, I don't know if I want to go here because it's, a, it, again, it's sacred cows and all that stuff, but I, I will. Sitting down inhibits respiratory function, which then alters the position of your head, pulls your head forward, which then alters the function of your respiratory function, right? It's kind of redundant there your breathing function right so you can't take a full breath which then inhibits your deep abdominal stabilizers and the breathing and the head position go hand in hand it's like a negative feedback unit so a lot of people so i told you that we i work on restoration and kettlebell training marrying the two 
So we have been able to get rid of knee pain almost immediately in some people and hip pain and all other types of weird things simply by restoring the function of breathing, their natural breathing function and their their resting head position because it all flows from the head. And people are like, how can that be? And I say, well, okay, I tell you what, here's, we're gonna do a little experiment. I'm going to allow you, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to I'm going to cut your spinal cord at C2, C3, and then we're going to see how well you function. Like, well, that will do. Well, one, you won't be able to breathe, and two, you won't be able to move any part of your body. So what we'll do is we'll stick you, we'll hook you up with a ventilator, and all that muscle tightness that you had will be instantly gone. Right? But that's how important everything above the neck is. Yeah. But we don't, we don't conceptualize that it's a different way of looking at things now am i saying you can fix all knee pain no you can't mm, you can't yeah, fix yeah, yeah. All of anything. but there's your starting point yeah wow. right okay. and then we go back and we take a look at those pictures of those uh, olympic lifters i changed the way i squatted because i was looking at uh, you know tying this back into how i got into kettlebells i'm watching another iron mind enterprises video wish you were here video and ronnie weller or uh, Ronnie Veller, as he says, because he's German, mm -hmm. right, uh, was on top. He was a super heavyweight, and I think he competed from 1987 to about 2002. And he was perennially either first, second, or third in the super heavyweight category. And I'm watching this video of him just squatting because Dr. Strosen's got behind the scenes. And he's like, and here's Ronnie Weller, and he's squatting an easy triple with at least two times his body weight. He weighs 140 kilos. He's got 730, 765 pounds on. I can't even do the math on that. It's well over 300 mm -hmm. kilos. Mm -hmm. 300, we'll say 320, 330. Yeah, yeah at least. Yeah. I'm watching him squat and I went, hold on. That looks weird. And by the way, Ronnie Weller has got sprinter's legs on weightlifter, on a weightlifter, like proportional. You know, sprinters have those great big, thick hamstrings yeah, and, and then quads and a big, mm -hmm. thick, mm -hmm. balled up gastrocs. And big butts. Mm -hmm. That's what Ronnie Weller looks like. I'm like, wait a second, something's weird about the way he's squatting. And I'm looking at him and I lean in and I press pause. And there is about a quarter inch to a half inch, or for my European friends, there's a centimeter of daylight between the heel of his weightlifting shoe and the platform when he's in the full squat. Wow. With 320. Wow. So he's like, he's that deep. He's rock bottom squat. He's coming out of the squat. He's actually in the squat. He's coming out of the squat. Excuse me. And you can see daylight between the heel of his weightlifting shoe and the platform. So what does that tell you? That tells me all the weight is shifted forward, forward. to the toe box. Exactly. And not on the heel, which is where we're all taught to squat. Keep your weight on your heels. Sit back into yeah. your hips. 90, yeah. 90, 90 degrees he, of the hip, 90 degrees at the knee. Don't he was, he was hex squatting it <laughs> yeah. with a with barbell on his back. And it was an easy triple. It, there was no struggle for him. To, he wasn't grinding it to get out of the hole. Yeah. Right. For him, this was Tuesday, you know, <laughs> just another Tuesday. It's just, it's just Tuesday. It's, it's fascinating. It's yeah. well, it, man. There's so, so many good things to unpack, but I, there's a couple of things that you said also about pain. Um, I've realized this as well. We have a lot of clients who are suffer from just pain since forever. And some of the clients, we were able to eliminate pain. And some of the clients we were able to reduce pain. 
And I've realized that for some people, the swing is not the best tool when they have back pain. For some it is, some need a different dose, some need a different swing, a different weight. But the fact of the matter is you're able to reduce it at least. But some people will always experience some level of pain. It's not something that you can take away from everybody. But at least if you can give them a relief, that's, that's a big benefit, right? And when you are learning all these, I think all these different uh, um, philosophies and ideas, especially when it comes down to squatting. Look at Mark Ripto's starting strength squat. The back squat, right? I love it. I think it's a great way to squat, especially for people who have knee pain. But you also have to learn how to front squat with a goblet squat, for example. You know, right? The goblet squat is nothing less than a front squat because the weight sits in front of you, which changes the knee angle, changes the back angle, changes the hip angle, changes everything. So then the knees move forward. So you are, I think, one of the most important aspects of, of just training in general is being able to let your body move throughout the full range of motion, all, all the, 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 the knees, the ankles, everything has to move as far as, as possible, right? And then you mentioned breathing, which is such a fascinating topic. And I have limited knowledge on this. I mean, we, we just talk, I, we have a particular breathing method that I use for kettlebell training. I call it HERP, uh, HRP, uh, HRB, hyperrhythmic breathing. Hyper because you forcefully exhale, right? So this comes like, a little bit from the heart style uh, uh, world, from Pavel, but it's not the where you keep it close in your mouth, but you really forcefully exhale. The rhythmic comes from the fact that when you do a clean and press, you want to breathe according to the exercise and breathing, where I sometimes incorporate even the Vazalva method, right? Where you, which I believe this is where a lot of core strength can come from. If you press a heavy weight, you want to breathe in, keep the core tight, and then press it. So, right, making making a solid column any solid force out of your out of your core. But here's what I realized with people who come into the gym. They cannot breathe. Right. Or 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 they're they shy away from breathing. It, it's either two things. They are too shy. I'm like, listen, this is how we're gonna breathe. Inhale and then forcefully exhale. And then you should hear me yell through the crowd when we have a small group session. I tell them, listen, when we train with kettlebells, it's supposed to be a symphony of breathing. I want to hear everybody forcefully exhale, throw the trash out. And so many people, when they breathe or exhale, it's like there's no strength coming from the stomach area, from the diaphragm or whatever have you. And funny thing is I read in Dr. Michael Yes's book that he says there is an apparatus that you can use to train your breathing muscles. It's, I think it's a, it's a small tool. It's, he calls it the, the, I don't know what it was, the power breather or something. You take it inside your mouth and you breathe and then you can even dial in the resistance or something. And he says the idea is to train your muscles that are uh, required and that are taking the work when you are breathing. So I am most definitely on the same page that there is a host of issues that are radiating down and maybe upwards if you don't breathe correctly yeah. and you don't eat, nobody's breathing into the nose. Everybody's always <gasps> instead of really using the nose where you get more clear air, you get even more quality. You built um, the nitrogen oxide, right? Which dilates the blood vessels. All that good stuff is happening when you breathe into the nose and nobody does it or rarely in, especially with beginners. So there's so much truth in there. I can most definitely attest to it.
Yeah, it's it is it's fascinating. You can if you teach somebody how to breathe and you can get them, I mean, it's ridiculous. I, I talk to my clients about this pretty routinely. We are so dismissive about breathing and the importance of breathing. But how long will you live if you can't breathe? And the answer is probably three to 10 minutes. Exactly. Right? It's that important. But because it's an everyday sort of thing, and because it's operating behind the scenes, we're incredibly dismissive about it. Right? So if you can teach somebody like you're doing with your, with your clientele how to breathe properly, and then you put the kettlebell on top of that. Mm-hmm. It's right? magic. I mean, it is magic, yeah, right? It I mean, it's is. not. It's science, but it's yeah, magic yeah. to the yeah. person who experienced <laughs> exactly. it. Right? Exactly. But it, it, but it doesn't fit that whole aerobics and you know bodybuilding, pec yeah. deck, get your pump on. It doesn't fit that paradigm. And so mm-hmm. it's it's so incredibly strange. It's it's like, you know, it's funny. Um, I was interviewing a, a friend of mine about uh, my restoration system. And he says, everybody wants different. And I totally agreed with him. And then you present them with different and they're like, oh, that's too, that's too different. You know, like they want familiar, but the familiar <laughs> doesn't work. Yeah. You think you want different, I'm giving you different, but you want to hold on to the familiar, which isn't working for you. Like humans are really weird like that. We say we want change, but then like you present the change, you're like, oh no, that's too uncomfortable. Wow. You know? But but here's a, wow, just popped into my mind. I, I'm reading the book from, I think, Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit, it's called. And uh, he said that you always have to, if you want to build a new habit, you always have to attach it to the familiar. And he, I, I, such a fascinating book. And this one sentence really struck me. He said, I think in World War II, when the United States got involved, they had to send out all the pork and all the, all the meat to the soldiers overseas. And so what happened was in the United States, it seemed that the, the consumption of meat, because it's all sending overseas for the war, it went down in, 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 in in-house in the States. So what... Uh, so what the government was telling people, actually one of those few times that the government was right, <laughs> they told their citizens that they're supposed to eat now intestines and brains and lungs and, and all that kind of stuff. But they knew, or at least the scientists who were behind it, knew that the housewives, they're not going to eat that stuff and they're not going to present it to their, to their families. Right. So here's what they had to do. They had to present it in a way that looks familiar. So the lung looks like steak or like meat or like whatever. They had to present it that way. So, and that's exactly what you're saying. They, people need maybe a new habit, but it has to be disguised in an old one, in a familiar right. one, because yeah. that's, that's how we adapt to change. And then he, said, he finishes the sentence by saying, uh, sadly, any of these later policies that they try to implement to keep people from gaining weight have never harkened back to this idea of combining the new with the familiar. It's a powerful book, Charles Duhigg. Yeah, The Power of Habit. I have one more final thing, uh, Jeff, and I'm re- really appreciating that you're taking out so much out of your uh, oh, my schedule pleasure. to have this conversation. Um, Pavel, I mean, yeah. a lot of people, I always say this, and I get, I get a lot of flack for this on YouTube, but I really don't care. Because fact of the matter is, I always explain it like this. Pavel was so pivotal in bringing the kettlebell to the, or re- bringing it back to the Western world. That's why I call it, I, don't, I used to call it a revolution. 
Now I call it a renaissance because I learned a little bit more about the kettlebell history. But he was so pivotal, along with John Lucane and RKC, that Pavel Tatulin will always be part of a discussion when kettlebells are brought up. So my question is, what, what was your relationship with Pavel? And you, you, you became a master instructor. How, was your, how much influence did you take on the course? And then you parted. What happened with Strong First and all that? Um, first and foremost, Pablo is my friend, right? He's still a, a good friend today, even though I'm not part of his organization. We talk routinely um, because he's just an outstanding, high quality human being, right? Like he is, I, I'm sure somebody will throw in a yeah, but, but to me, uh, Pablo is the very definition of a gentleman and a gentleman with integrity. And so I, I always enjoy talking to him. We exchange training ideas uh, pretty routinely. Um, we keep in touch through email, phone calls, that sort of thing, because we're friends. Um, I left, I said, I, I left, I resigned my instructor, my master instructor status with Strong First in 2014. I was um, in college. I was studying a mas for a master's degree. I had a two-year-old son and I had a newborn daughter. And I had this other business that was getting off the ground. So, oh, and I had a, I had a real estate business in multiple states in which I wasn't living, right? Like so remote. So I'm, I'm managing and I have my online business. So I'm managing mm -hmm. different businesses. Mm -hmm. I was the education manager at Strong First, as well as being a master instructor. So I edited the certification and uh, course curriculum. So I just, I had, it was too much on my plate. I had to step away. Yeah. So um, I had no, nothing bad to say about Strong First at all. I think it's a great organization. I love what he's doing over there. And uh, I will always support what they're doing. Uh, and people say, well, why aren't you back in with Strong First? Well, I, I probably could go back in, but um, I just don't have the time to do that. That's not really what my mission is right now. My, my purpose and my mission is dealing with guys a little younger than me, I just had a milestone birthday not too long ago, mm -hmm. but I, my, my mission and my purpose is, is not to build kettlebell instructors, right? My mission and my purpose is to help guys who are 40 and older recapture what they lost in the previous two decades from going into corporate America or corporate Europe or corporate Australia, right? My Australia friends, corporate Asia, right? And sacrificing their lives and their families to the man and they wake up and they're 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds overweight. And they look in the mirror and they go, who is that dude? Like, I don't recognize that guy. I mean, I know who I, I see myself as, but the person staring back in the mirror is not that guy. So that's, that's my mission and my purpose is to help wow. those guys out. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, I think that answered your question. Did, mm -hmm. did I, yeah, I need to yeah. elaborate more? No, nah, so. that, that, that's fine. It's uh, what I mean. It, what even resonates more is that this deep, uh, this deep why that you're having and how you explain it with, with the guys who get lost in corporate America. I, and one thing that comes to mind is my conversation that I had with Dan John, where he said, most guys get lost from 19 to 35. Mm -hmm. They get lost to the, you mentioned the corporate world. A lot of guys get lost to the, to the bars, of course. Yeah. And then they raise families and then they have, they have this, um, deadline mentality it's like i gotta deliver and when i have time for myself 
I want to completely relax. And and then you have all these important activities like uh, reading a book or staying in shape or eating healthy and learning new stuff about uh, training or just being and like uh, you don't even have to do a lot, right? It's just most people show up for one workout per week, which is awesome, right? But uh, most people get lost along that way, and then you have to you come back and you have to you have to rebuild or yeah, you have to really take a big step back and then re reevaluate your situation and find like okay, wow, there's a lot of stuff that I have to take care of now. Which and just read a study that says. Nine out of ten overweight people gain it back. Yeah. And so the the later on, and that was like, yeah, you are a one hundred percent true scientist. <laughs> not 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 trying to discredit scientists or talk bad about them. But he, what he said at the end, when the interviewer was questioning him, was like, well, what are we supposed to do? Then he was like, well, not get fat in the first place. Yeah. Was that Art Devaney? So, <laughs> I don't know who it was. That. I don't know who it was. But that's like, there's like, there's a lot of truth in it. But folks, there's a man. There's a lot of people who are overweight already. So what are they supposed to do? We, they need a solution. So yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> but yeah, but it, it is what it is. Yeah. So that's exactly what we do. So hey, Jeff, man, I really appreciate your time. It was an awesome conversation. And uh, I, I wanted to talk about strength a little bit more. I wanted to dive a little bit deeper. But like I said, it's a conversation, and so it takes different routes and then I just naturally follow it. So, but maybe we can do one again and then we t can talk a little bit more about uh, your ideas of strength and how uh, your programs and how you focus on and on on your different uh, uh, the way the way you want to help men over 40 and how you do it and that that's something that's highly interesting to me. But maybe we can do this another time. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah. Awesome. This is great. I loved it. It was yeah, definitely uh, twists and turns. So, yeah. Twists during the conversation, which I appreciate it. If you want to take your kettlebell coaching career to the next level, consider getting certified with Libby Stock. Check the first link in the description.